Yeah, Challenge was an awesome week. It's crazy that was like three weeks ago. And it's been a whirlwind of a summer, but it's been a great summer. But um, yeah, those uh, kids had a great time. We stayed in Airbnb, which was fun, and uh, kind of shoved ourselves into two little houses and had a great week just growing as a community and encountering God. So uh, very fun. It's every other year. So if you're in high school still, by that time, make sure you get on that list. It was, it was an amazing time. Um, my name is Henry Michael. I'm the pastor of Students and Family. And welcome to everybody here. Uh, I see some new faces. So welcome, you guys. We're in a series on Second Peter. This is week eight. And the whole idea of this sermon in this series is, uh, th- these are Peter's last words. He tells us he's, he's about to die. And when somebody says, they're about to die, you want to listen to their last words, especially if they were a close uh, follower and walked with Jesus. So if you can, uh, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, it's on page 1,226 if you're using the Bibles in front of you. We're going to be in the NIV if you have it on a tablet or a device. Uh, we, we open our Bibles each week because we believe that the Bible should not be a mystery to any of us and our place in God's story. And despite the fact that this passage is crazy and it's going to be a mystery when we read it, hopefully by the end of this message it'll be less of a mystery. So we're going to hear a portion of our passage uh, from one of our five ochres. Second Peter 2, 17 through 22. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of the righteous than to them have then to have known it and turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to the wallowing mud. So this is a challenging passage. We can get that out of the way. Um, and if you've been around for a while, you can, you can uh, assume that I'm moving in the right direction here because I'm now not just preaching after uh, Christmas. We're on a holiday. I've graduated to the passage that no one else wants to preach. So I have a long list of that right there. But before we jump into our passage, let's pray uh, a prayer of illumination so that we can be open to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as we, as we study this passage. The, this prayer comes from uh, John chapter 16. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. Illuminate your word and guide us to your truth. Lead us into a deeper knowledge of who you are and teach us to walk step by step with you. Lord, as we study this passage and the challenging words in this passage, uh, convict us and bring us closer to you in that time. In your name I pray, amen. I, shortly after I graduated college in Eau Claire, I moved down to Louisville, Kentucky for an internship and for seminary. And pretty much right away, I moved into a house of other seminary students, and 
It was already a shock because living there in the summer is next to living on the sun. It is extremely hot. And I tried to use that hot day to explore my city with my brand new bike. And there was a park near my house that I, has some nice trails. So I went on this bike ride and a long bike ride and I came back and I was disgusting and I needed to take a shower and get cleaned up and cool off. And as I'm doing that, I turn on the TV and have you know, ESPN or something uh, for some background music as I'm cooling off, or background noise, sorry. Now, as this is going, I'm doing my thing, I'm cooling off, trying to enjoy the air conditioning uh, from, from that hot bike ride, and all of a sudden I hear this alarm noise come over the TV. I'm not paying attention, but when that alarm noise came on, I was paying attention. And I look at this alarm and this, scr- this uh, news bulletin scrolling across the bottom, and there was a Dow uh, chemical leak uh, from a crash or something. I, I don't even remember the details. I looked it up. I have a picture of it. I think this is when it happened, but I also realize this happens more often than I thought. Uh, but there was this uh, noxious fumes in the air. And it said this is, uh, and I can't pronounce this, so if you're a science person, I'm really sorry, uh, methyl methacrylate. Uh, and so this chemical is highly flammable. And it, uh, it can burst into flames, I guess, and you can have an explosion, or if you breathe it, it can uh, cause dizziness or suffocation. It can even absorb into your skin. Okay, so they said um, you need to shelter in place, which it wasn't cool to shelter in place then as it is now. But you had to shelter in place. I didn't really know what that meant. And they said you need to cover all your doors, all your windows, anything that it can have air on the outside, and you need to shut off your air conditioning and all appliances, They even said you have to duct tape your wall sockets. I was like, no. It's 200 degrees outside. I'm brand new to the city. They're like, like, it's in these counties. And I was like, I don't know what county I'm in. I didn't have a a smartphone back then. This was around 2010. Uh, They weren't as widely used as they are now. Brand new to the city. I had no supplies. I was living with a bunch of guys. So you know that we had an abundance of like hamburger meat, but nothing else. And so, this is a microcosm of my personality. When I feel out of control or like I don't know what to do, I do nothing. Hoping for the best. Because it's easier to do nothing than to duct tape all my wall sockets. Now, for many of us, when we read these difficult passages, like the one that we have today in 2 Peter, and actually much of 2 Peter, uh, it can be disorienting. It can be confusing. We tend to either ignore these passages or we look at it as one of those passages that that mattered back in that time and that place, but really has nothing to say to us today. And so we write it off and we hope for the best, or we freak out and try to look for false teachers in every situation. So yes, this is not a best-selling devotional we're reading, and this whole series is not based on a best-selling devotional. This is hard words, but it's also important words. This is a stern warning that there are false teachers in our midst and their teaching is poisonous. But I don't think it's as obvious as many of us would like to think. I believe this passage is warning us of an unseen poisonous gas in our culture and in our churches, something so dangerous that can inflict damage and even blow our churches up. So as we jump into, back into 2 Peter chapter 2, 
we need to address a few things. One, there is no such thing as the perfect church. You can look all you want. You won't find a perfect church, okay? But also, we can see in our church culture, if you're paying attention, there is either a church leader, an organization, or a church in general that is failing miserably because of false teachers, false teachings, and what that does not only to that church and that organization, but to the people that are following this church and this organization. So we need to be equipped as a church and as followers of Christ to not only avoid false teachers, but these false teachings. We need to open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to God's word. And we're going to see two ways that we can avoid false teachers, okay? So first one is that we need to learn how to recognize them when we see them. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. So we read 17 through 22, but we start at 10b, uh, and we're going to start from there going all the way through. So it says, bold and arrogant, they are, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. So before we go any further, I need to address a few things. Because if I don't address this, I know everyone's going to be like, what's with the celestial beings thing? And honestly, I have no idea. Um, I hate to punt it, but if you look at what all these different uh, theologians say, you'll find that many different answers on what this could mean. And so I asked around, I read up, and as far as I could see, uh, the best answer that I got from this is that, uh, the best theory I got was that the Jewish people at that time had a more developed theology on angels than what that was passed on to us today, Okay. So if we're going to get into this, and it's also in Jude 1.8, um, we have to look at two things that this verse is saying that we can actually hold on to, even though we don't fully understand what it's saying, okay? So the first thing is, and I'm going to put my dad hat on for this one, don't heap abuse on celestial beings, and don't hang out with people that do, okay? That's the first one. And that can be like one of those answers of like, don't do it, because you'll find out when you're older, but... I don't think you're going to accidentally fall into this one. I think if you're heaping abuse on celestial beings, you will know that you're heaping abuse on celestial beings, okay? There's not like a secret here that I'm trying to hold back from. But number two, we do see in here that these teachers that are heaping abuse on celestial beings, even if we're not fully understanding what that means or what that looks like, they are doing it with a pattern of arrogance and blasphemy, so we can at least hold on to that. We can hold on to that characteristic of a, of a false leader, that they are arrogant and they blaspheme, okay? Let's jump into verse 13 and see what it says. It says, they will be paid back with, the harm, with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, in a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained 
the prophet's madness. And so, if we're going to get anything from this, we need to first recognize the tone that Peter is speaking in, okay? So I have three different ways that we could read this passage, okay? And the first one is kind of maybe one of the more obvious ones, okay? We could read this with, or read this with the tone of vitriol, that he's angry. And I, I picture Charlton Heston as Moses, as this guy yelling, and he's angry at the false teachers and the teaching, and he's like, just get off my lawn, kids, and don't do that, and don't do this. And that's the picture I got from that. The other way of reading this is the face value reading of this. These are what bad guys look like and where it leads. And I, I call this also the cartoon bad guy approach. Anytime in a cartoon, when you see this guy, you know that he's the bad guy. And so when, when you see this reading and when you see this in the church, you should be able to recognize him because he looks like that and you want to avoid him. But I think the tone that he is using and the one that we're going to dive into a little more deeply is the unseen, odorless, suffocating gas approach. This is the approach I believe he's using because I don't think Peter is using these words and this passage to complain about bad leadership or to give us a picture of this is what a bad guy looks like so when you see him, run away. I don't think what he's doing, that. I think that would be too obvious. If, if this guy was leading our church, and we got a picture, let's go back to the, uh, the cartoon bad guy. Yeah, if this guy was leading our church, he would have a pretty interesting church, okay? No one would follow him. I think this problem is more of a poisonous gas. I, mean, I think this is the kind of thing that uh, their teachings, although it may not be obvious, this person, although he may not be obvious, will kill you if you don't know what you're looking for. This is a largely unseen condition. It's a spiritual condition not invisible to the naked eye. It's a poisonous heart that is marked by bravado, confidence, and maybe even what the, the world would define as success in a fruitful ministry. Peter uses these words, bold and arrogant. They carouse in broad daylight. Their eyes are full of lust. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. What does that even look like? Because we can look at a leader who's doing this or not doing this, and we can say, sure, they're, they're really bold. But are they being bold for the gospel or are they being bold for their own gain? How do we tell if they're being arrogant? Maybe they're just fighting for the faith. But they, they're really smart, so they're using big words and um, they're, they're, they're sharing Jesus on, on, on social media. Is that the platform for Jesus or are they platforming themselves? They seem to be approachable. And they talk to, to the congregation and they seem very loving, but how do we know where their minds are at when they, when they encounter people of the opposite sex in their, in their congregation? They get paid because they work hard and they grew a church and they should be able to spend it any way they want, but should they be buying those, those particular clothes or those particular houses or cars? I've known uh, really terrible pastors who were taken out of their positions because of power and greed and the things that Peter is warning against, and they fit all of those questions in the negative way. But we, don't, we didn't know it at the time. And the same thing for some really great pastors who may look like they were platforming themselves and all these different things, but they were following Jesus and the gospel, and they were wonderful leaders. Our call here is not to be heresy hunters. 
but to have humble discernment about who we follow and who we listen to. These, these examples, they highlight that it's a, it's a heart issue. This is that suffocating, odorless gas. The language is strong. The lifestyle seems obvious, but it's not. Our churches are filled with them. Social media is filled with them. Our spiritual questions on Google take you to these kind of people. They don't have a look, but their intentions are clear. It's about them, and they will use you and others in any way to get what they want or to benefit them. So we need to recognize that a false teacher is not always obvious. It's a slow burn, a constant drip, a long game of what can look like a a fruitful ministry. It can look like confidence. It can look like a level of expertise that's beyond us. What I'm trying to get us to understand is Peter is showing us the spiritual reality and the spiritual ends of a false teacher's heart and where they will lead you. And just to show how nuanced of a situation this can be, Peter brings us to an analogy and a story from history. And it sounds like a crazy story about a talking donkey, but it's a story that happens in the Old Testament in Numbers 22 through 24. And if you read that at home, um, there's going to be more questions than I'm going to be able to answer here, okay? So uh, Numbers 22 drops us into this story about how nuanced it can be uh, to, to understand what a false teacher is. And so where we find ourselves in Numbers 22 is the people of Israel had been wandering the desert for 40 years. They'd gotten out of slavery in Egypt. They were going to the promised land. They failed because they didn't trust God. And so they wandered in judgment for 40 years. But it's towards the end of their 40 years. And they're about to enter the land. And they're starting to just destroy all these Canaanite towns from the outside. And everyone is terrified. And you can just imagine how terrified they are because this is a group of of ragtag wanderers, kids, families, and they, they just got out of Egypt and they've just been walking around the desert for 40 years and there's a million of them and somehow they're destroying fortified cities. It could only be a God that is more powerful than their God who could be doing such a thing. So we meet this character named Balak. That's how I'm going to pronounce it at least. Balak, B-A-L-A-K. Uh, He's the king of Moab, and he's the next city that's about to be taken over. And so he is terrified, and he understands that his army is not going to be able to beat this army. And so he comes up with a plan to cut off Israel's strength in a different way. And that's where we meet Balaam. Now, Balaam, we don't really know a ton about Balaam, but we know that he's famous, and he's a diviner, and that he can talk to God, or at least the spiritual realm. And so what Balak does is he goes to Balaam, with some dignitaries and some money, and he tries to get Balaam to curse God's people so that they cannot take over Moab. Moab. So Balaam, when confronted with this offer, in verse 12, he goes and talks to God. But it says, God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. And so what does Balaam do? He sends them home. He says, I cannot do this. You go home. And so this is a really good sign for Balaam, right? He's talking to God and he's listening to God. He says, go home. But Balak doesn't take no for an answer. Balak sends more money and more dignified officials to come back to Balaam to try to do the same exact thing. So we get in verse 18. 
But Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. Now we're starting to see cracks in Balaam's character. Because if God wasn't going to uh, curse the people of Israel for a small amount of money, I don't know what more money is going to do with God, more dignified officials with God. So with confronted with money and power and more fame, Balaam actually goes with these people, even though God said not to. Now, this is the crazy part of the story, is where he's walking, he's on the way to, to meet Balak, and an angel of the Lord comes to block his path. Now, Balaam can't see him because he is blind with greed. He's not following the Lord. But his donkey does see the angel and doesn't want to go that way because the angel of the Lord is terrifying. And so the donkey stops. Balaam gets angry. He gets unhinged. He's, like, beating his donkey. The donkey just, like, sits down. He, like, lays down. He is screaming at his donkey, whipping his donkey, beating his donkey. And so the donkey turns and looks at him and says, why are you doing this? I've been a good donkey. Like basically gives a history of how good of a donkey he has been for so long. Don't you think that if I had a reason to stop, I would stop? And that's when God let him see the angel of the Lord. And so what does Balaam do? He repents, which is another seemingly good sign. Talks to God, listens to God. He repents when he does something wrong. But God sends him ahead anyways and says, hey, listen, go ahead and go with them, but you can only speak my words, okay? You can't speak anything else, only my words. And in chapters 23 and 24, we see Balak saying, curse them, curse them, curse them over and over and over again. But God speaks through Balaam, and Balaam not, doesn't do anything what Balak wants him to do. He blesses them even more and blesses them and curses the Canaanites, and Balak is is getting furious. He's like, why are you doing this? And so Balaam doesn't seem like that bad of a guy. Again, I'm going to go through the fruit of Balaam, okay? One, he's known for talking to God, and he actually talks to God. Seems like a good guy so far. He repents when he realizes that he has done something wrong, at least on the outward, right? Check. That's good. He speaks God's word. God speaks through him, and he speaks it Seemingly faithfully. Check. All right? Seems like a good guy. Numbers 25, though, we have a scene where the Moabites seduce the Israelites, where men began to indulge in sexual immorality. They sacrificed to their gods, ate sacrificial meals. They bowed down to their gods. It's a crazy scene of just horrible proportions of God's people, and God comes down on them and judges them harshly. And so in uh, chapter 31 of Numbers Verses 16 and 17, we learn that Balaam is the one who thought of that idea to entrap the Lord's people in sexual immorality and worshiping other gods. So this is what makes seeing a false teacher so hard. Balaam, who seems to have so much fruit, finds out that he cannot manipulate God by speaking with God and by doing what God says. He ends up bringing the wrath of God on his people by going around God. Because the, the words of God didn't change Balaam. Because he, his heart was full of greed and lust 
in error. And he seduced the unstable. So the whole point of this analogy and the whole point of the story of Balaam is to show false teachers are not obvious. So far, I hope you've realized Peter is not giving us a picture of a false teacher that would be obvious in our midst. He's saying it's important to recognize them and to see them in our midst, but he also illustrates how hard that is to do. So there must be something more we can do as God's people and as a church to avoid false teaching and false teachers. And that takes us to our second point. We need to practice listening to Jesus. We will be drawn in by false teachers and their fruit, by their fruit and their successes if we are not actively listening to the word of Jesus. Practicing hearing the word of Jesus is not an intellectual exercise, merely an intellectual exercise. It goes far beyond that. It's a whole life orientation of being a part and being a member of God's family. So we're going to jump back into verse 17 uh, to the end of this chapter. He says in verse 17, These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. They mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who, who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and and again are entangled in it, are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit. And a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Now, in preparing for this message, the first few verses really tripped me up. And I overcomplicated the rest of these verses. And I thought this was a really hard to understand passage because of the first couple of verses. So celestial beings were in my head. Um, but what, when I started paying attention to 17 through 22, I started realizing that this is kind of teaching these, these teachers and the fruit of their teaching, I see this every day. Now, before we get into that, I also want to make the disclaimer. I'm not going to jump into every kind of heresy that we can, we can see in the church, and I know that many of us have family members that are following false teachings, and it's wreaking destruction on your family and themselves. We just can't get into all of that. We have to look inward first before we can look outward. And so what Peter is talking about with these false teachers Uh, any of us would be tempted to follow this way of teaching at some point in our lives and in some season in our lives uh, and in various ways, especially if we're not in the practice of listening to Jesus. And it doesn't always have a fancy heresy name, although sometimes it does. And verse 18 is what really stuck out to me when I was reading this. It says, For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. He's warning that false teachers are, being, are, are uh, bringing people who are coming into the Christian faith, who are escaping slavery and error and all of this corruption, and they're bringing them back into slavery, error, and, uh, and, and uh, corruption, but in the name of Jesus. 
They left sin. They were washed clean by the waters of baptism, but they returned to their filth. So what Peter is warning us here against is that the church should not abuse God's grace, otherwise known as cheap grace. So cheap grace, if if you're not aware of that term, uh, is the person who becomes a Christian because uh, maybe unintentionally, but maybe intentionally sometimes, is the whole idea of their Christian faith is just to go to heaven. They're checking off a box. They become a Christian, then they go about their lives as if nothing has changed. This can be a gradual way of living or it can be an immediate way of living. This is the poisonous gas that we need to be aware of in our churches and in our lives because it feels easier sometimes to say, hey, my life doesn't really have to change, but at least I get to go to heaven. And this may look uh, a number of ways, and it's not limited to this list either. It could be uh, the political party that you are a part of becomes your central morality. Whatever your platform of your uh, party is what you agree with and everything you agree with. And you can't ever criticize your party because that is your party that you go with. Okay? Because, you know what, there's some good things that either party uh, fights for. And it's good to be a part of politics and stuff. But you are not known for Jesus You're known for your political party. So I'm a Christian, but I'm a Republican Christian, or I'm a Democrat Christian. You may not say it that way, but you live that way. Another way this looks is maybe uh, work and money have become your master, where success and failure um, is how your day goes. You know, you need to support your family, and so you can say, oh, that's a really good part of doing that. But instead, what it really is looking like is you're trying to serve God in money. Sex and relationships become our God, or at least our ultimate source of happiness. We've been told that this stuff fulfills us. I mean, God created marriage. He created sex. They should be good, right? But instead, we view our spouse or our sexual experience as uh, the hope that we live for, and they are our gods, but they le- let us down always in the end. Vacation and traveling are now your heaven. Maybe it's working for the weekend, working for vacation. It's good to rest, yes, but you're more concerned with forming good experience than being formed by God. We do this with our kids and sports and schools and becomes our discipleship, the air we breathe. Yeah, breathe. We want our kids to be good citizens in this world. But when our kids leave or when they mess up, it destroys us inside and can even destroy our marriages. All these have nuggets of truth in them about how good they may or can be. But we should never live our lives for them. Cheap grace Sounds like the Christian life, but really it's living in slavery with a heavenly stamp of approval. But look what Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 7. I'll have it on the screen. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's cheap grace. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. 
For if we have been united with him in death, a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Paul in Romans 6 is calling us to reject cheap grace and enter into something far more fulfilling. Cheap grace may seem easier to follow Christ because we are falling into something that seems familiar, but just because slavery is familiar doesn't make it good. The pursuit of familiarity is the pursuit of comfort. And the pursuit of comfort leads to passivity, and passivity leads to slavery. We need to reject that. Slavery doesn't prepare you to listen to the voice of Jesus. And when we aren't listening to the voice of Jesus, we are so easily poisoned by the noxious odor of false teachers and their teachings. We need to listen to the voice of Jesus. Not that one time when you become a Christian, but have a life of practice, of constantly following Jesus day by day, practicing it until by God's grace it becomes natural or more natural to our lives. So how do we do that? Well, looking at Romans 6, I find three ways that we can do that. One is by following Jesus. That sounds obvious, but look in verse 3 of Romans 6. It says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We therefore were buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Those who follow Jesus don't participate in cheap grace because cheap grace leads to slavery and we don't participate in that anymore. Grace isn't to do what we want. Grace is that we were once failures, that we could not please God. There was nothing we could do to please God. In fact, we were enemies of God, no matter how cute or moral you think you are. But for some reason, that's still beyond my imagination, God sent his son Jesus to live the life that pleased God. Not for his own sake, but for our sake. And he lived that perfect life so that he could take the punishment that our sins deserve. The innocent Savior went to the cross for us. But he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead so that we can find life as well. Cheap grace ignores following Christ we begin to understand what real grace is when we realize that Jesus has brought us out of slavery, not back in slavery. We've been saved for something else. And when you put your faith in Christ, you're following in his resurrected life, his new life. Death is behind you, slavery is behind you, and that is good news. However, being saved from death doesn't fully equip you to listen to the voice of Jesus. That's only the beginning of the journey because you also get to know Jesus. It says in verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Joining Jesus in his resurrection transforms our lives, not just to go to heaven, but to know him now and for eternity. Having worked in youth ministry for a long time, I get this question uh, quite regularly over the years that I've been in youth ministry. And Uh, A student may ask something like this, as a Christian, can I, or am I allowed to, and then fill in the blank? 
Am I allowed to listen to such and such music? Am I allowed to do this or that with my girlfriend or boyfriend? Or how far is too far? Or can I participate in this activity or that activity? And I think it's a natural question as we're trying to understand who God is and how he, should, how he shapes our lives and what it looks like to have discipleship. But I think it's the wrong question. Because that question leads us and sets us up for cheap grace. And I, I hope as we, uh, if you hear that or if you even find yourself thinking that, we can recognize this doesn't equip us to listen to the voice of Jesus. We can be super legalistic and say what a Christian can and cannot do. But instead of asking for, for permission that leads to passivity, we need to ask the question, what am I participating in now that is either helping or hurting me listening to Jesus? That's a more nuanced question. That takes a little bit of thought. That takes a community around us to be able to help identify that in our lives. Participating in his resurrection means that you can know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, it transforms your life. It makes reading your Bible not a chore. And it may feel like a chore at first, but someone who's trying to know Jesus is reading their Bible and they're trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he has to say about your life and the promises that he has. Like I said, it might be a gradual thing, but you find joy in reading your Bibles. Prayer isn't a complicated formula, something that you have to do. It, it is something that you get to do because you know Jesus and you get to talk to him like a friend and you might bumble around for a bit and that's okay. Worship isn't just about listening to your favorite worship band, playing your favorite songs that gives you goosebumps, which is totally fine and good. But it's more than that. It's being led and being thankful into Jesus. If you have a song that you're just not a big fan of, look at the words. How is it bringing you closer to Jesus? Preachers, for us, we're not preaching for ourselves. We're preaching to help you know God more and have a hunger for God. But you guys, as listeners of sermons, don't listen, and obviously there's a lot of things you can criticize about how I preach. I understand that. But hopefully, you listen to sermons, and it gets you more excited about reading your Bible, and not merely taking the words of a preacher or a, a writer, just taking it for what it is, but testing it and reading Scripture for yourself. Serving isn't about just a morning or a night taken away from your week, but participation in Jesus Works. These things intertwine together. It's not a step-by-step -step, uh, process of knowing Jesus, but we get an opportunity to know and be directed by Jesus. And when we follow him in that resurrection, we get to know him deeper, and lastly, we get to join his work. Verse 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Grace or freedom in Christ means that you get to join Jesus in the good and beautiful life. And that beautiful life sets us free from sin and the disappointments that slavery will inevitably bring in our lives. Peter is definitely calling out false teachers and their teachings. Most biblical writers do at some point in their writings. Jesus does it himself. We should always be aware of what's bringing us into slavery and push away anyone that teaches false doctrines to lead us away from Christ. But we are a people who are known more for who we are for than what we are merely against. We're a people who are called in community 
where we join Jesus together to learn about how to follow and listen to his voice. That's why everything from kids to students to, to uh, uh, story of God, men's and women's, small groups, here right now, we don't just sit here alone, one-on-one conversations because we do this in community. We join together to study God's word and see how to listen together. It's imperfect, definitely. But we do that practicing on how we can know Jesus. If you haven't participated in community, that's your number one step. Jump into community. Have others pour into your life. If you uh, maybe have left community or maybe that's something you used to do, jump back in. If not for yourself, do it for others. You have a chance to love other people, to work in their lives. And if you've involved in community, maybe your call is to deeper vulnerability. Lead in that way. No one thinks you have it all together. And no one wants you to have it all together. They want to join with you in the struggles that it is to listen to God's voice and not to follow after slavery. We need people to pray for us, minister to us, and support us in this chaotic world. Communion, which is what we're going to take right now, is another great way to listen to Jesus. We do this together every single week. And we do this because we are remembering God's grace. We are united with him through his body, which we take every single week, which is, reminds us of his body that was broken for us. So we take and eat. And we take the juice, remembering his blood that was shed for us. So we take that and we drink. We remember this because this is the grace that we live in every single day, that we once walked in slavery and that if you are a Christian, you no longer do. That might be your call this week to follow Jesus. Start in that road of of, uh, following Christ and listening to Christ and stop chasing after slavery. We can do this together. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for equipping us to be able to listen to your word and to avoid things that bring us back into slavery. Lord, I pray for each one of us as we are tempted to jump back into things that we were once saved from, Lord, that we can follow your example, listen to you, and be led by you. In your name I pray, amen.